Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Built to be joined right now by Dan Zimborski. Dan is the creator of the Zips Projection System, which can be found on ESPN and Fangraphs. You can give Dan a follow on Twitter at DZimborski. That's D-S-Z-Y-M-B-O-R-S-K-I. Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Good to, good to be on. Well, let's start at the beginning, I guess. Tell me what initially got you into baseball in the first place. Well, I always liked baseball as a child. I grew up in Baltimore, and uh, everyone was Orioles crazy. And I, and I have always had a fascination with the game. Uh, since I'm clearly not of a ability level in which I can play in the majors, it, writing about it's kind of the next best thing. So how did Zips come to be, the projection system? Uh, it's funny. Uh, I was talking with another fellow named Chris Dial in the 90s, and we had an idea to just sort of make something that, that Tom Tango did later as Marcel, just trying to do a basic projection system that everybody could could access. Uh, I didn't, nothing really came of it until uh, early in the 21st century. Uh, after Voris McCracken did a lot of work with, with dips, um, my idea was to use the research to try to improve pitching projections. Um, I added uh, hitting projections after that because it doesn't make sense to do one without the other, and it just grew from there. How accurate is Zips in terms of what percentage of players fall into what would be described as a correct projection and what are incorrect? Well, correct is all in the eyes of the beholder. Uh, The goal of a projection system is essentially to be slightly less inaccurate than everybody else. That's that's (laughs) the Holy Grail. The Holy Grail isn't wisdom and magic because that's not going to happen. We're dealing with very volatile information. Players are very tricky to project no matter how you do it, whether you do it with math or, or consulting the Oracle at Delphi or feeling it in your bones as you know, the old-time scouts do. It's, it's very hard to project players. So our goal is simply to bring some order and provide interesting information to all the disorder. If you project a player, for example, to hit 40 home runs, we'll use a basic counting number, and they hit 37, you would consider that a correct projection, correct? Oh, I would, I would consider that a correct projection. If I, if I projected everybody within three home runs, I would have so much money right now. I'd be sleeping on piles of it and, and using it instead of gas in my furnace and all sorts of crazy things. Right. Life would be very good if that were the case. So is there a, is there a basic number in terms of what percentage of accuracy you're looking for? Uh, you want you want correlations to be at least in the zero point six range. That's that's usually about where the projection systems end up. And as long as I stay kind of in that group, which I have, then then I'm happy about it. Does Zips do defensive projections? Uh, I do do defensive projections. Uh, defense defensive data, as you know, is ve- is also very volatile. It's hard to really get a a feel on in one year period. Essentially, one year of defensive data has about as much predictive value as as two months of offensive data. That's how error-prone uh, defensive data is. We're still, we're still getting a handle on that. Uh, but I do project defense. It's, it's an important part of the game, so you have to, on some level, take it into consideration. What statistics do you find most reliable for projecting future performance? Stats like strikeouts and walks tend to be more stable. Uh, a lot of the batting average is one of the more difficult ones because there's, there's certain components of that that are very tricky, like the batting average on balls in play. That, that's one of the reasons that people like numbers like FIP, because those numbers that FIP is based on, the homer rate, the strikeout rate, and the walk rate, especially the last two, are much more stable than the uh, than other statistics. The uh, Triple Crown statistics got a lot of play this year for obvious reasons. How accurate do you find average RBI and home runs to be to projecting future success? They don't do as, as good a job as other statistics do. Home runs, of course, is, is an important statistic, and it's still, when you look at uh, sabermetric stats like OPS, on-base percentage, slugging percentage, runs created, all that stuff, home runs is a big component of that, so that carries a lot going forward. RBI ability above and beyond isolated power and opportunity is, does not really provide much in the way of predictive value. Can we get into specific projections at this point about the 2012 season in particular? What players do you know experienced the biggest busts or the biggest busts in terms of projections and who experienced the biggest booms, who exceeded projections the most? I would actually have to open that up, uh, but we can continue talking while while I uh, call that up. I want to ask you about a general 
philosophy question of how do you think the sabermetric community can do a better job presenting its information? Uh, one thing the sabermetric community uh, could do a better job of is, is that of course, I'm guilty of it, is not to be so certain about everything. And I, of course, write, and I, of course, make big statements too, but so I fall into this, into this uh, category. Uh, and in addition, we have to improve on how we communicate. A lot of people who, who work with sabermetrics consider the writing aspect of it to be almost an afterthought. Uh, the writing is the primary way you're communicating, uh, so it's important to also write in a manner in which people can understand uh, the sabermetrics. Bill James wasn't some kind of genius mathematician, but he communicates incredibly well, and that's really the the biggest reason he's pushed sabermetrics so far in the, uh, the over the 1980s is that he was such a good communicator, more than some you know math wizard. There was a lot of talk this year on the AL MVP debate, traditional writers, and it seems like players and managers all thought Cabrera was deserving, talent evaluators, general managers, scouts, and the sabermetric community obviously all, all favored Trout. Where did you fall? I was definitely on Team Trout. Um, even if you take away a lot of his defensive value, he still had a, a pretty sizable edge over Miguel Cabrera. Uh, one of the things about Trout is while we use wins above replacement to describe this season, you can make a case for it without it. Wins above replacement simply reflects things we already know about baseball. It's not the reason we feel a certain way. If you look at a simpler statistics, uh, baseball references OPS+, plus, which is simply on-base percentage and slugging percentage uh, in a league-neutral environment compared to league average, which is a simpler concept. And Trout's OPS+, plus was right at Miguel Cabrera's. It even edged it by a point or two, but that's, that's kind of insignificant. The most interesting thing about the MVP debate is that you kind of had the writers on the side of focusing only on offensive statistics, and it was the mean old stat heads that were the ones talking about things like defense and base running and avoiding double plays. Uh, So that was kind of an interesting switcheroo from some previous years. It was a little hypocritical in some senses because you hear former players on TV and, and during broadcasts all the time saying it's not just about hitting, it's about defense and it's about you know things that you can't quantify like base running, but you know we can quantify base running at this point. And in those advantages, well, I think Cabrera was a better hitter between the two. I, I think if you have the option of having the best hitter in, a league, in the league who is also a, a poor defensive player and a poor base runner versus having the second best hitter in the league who's an elite base runner and elite defensive player, don't you take the second best hitter with the elite defense and the base running in that case? This year, it was just essentially binary. Triple crown wins. That's MVP. And that's the kind of binary decision-making that is the worst use of stats. Because essentially, just looking at the triple crown saying, okay, triple crown winner equals MVP, that is a misuse of stats. That's just going solely by stats. If we use stats, we should use the best stats possible, not just the stats that we're the most comfortable with or that they used in 1890. We hit a point where um, batting average is easy to calculate and it's easy to explain, and wins above replacement and runs created plus are not. And I think just because it's not easy to explain, that doesn't mean they're not valid or better indicators of a player's performance. I I would agree with that. Can we hop back over to the uh, 2012? Some of the worst projections I had. Um, Justin Upton was, was a pretty big miss. Uh, I had him hitting 283, 366, 505 with 28 home runs. Brett Lowry was good, but I only had him, I had him hitting with a lot more power than he eventually did. I imagine Hosmer was one. Hosmer, oh, Hosmer was one. He was one of my favorites for a breakout season, which he completely did not do. Uh, Brian McCann was definitely a miss. Over on the pitching side, Winsicum was a pretty, pretty big miss. Luckily, the big misses tend to be shared by everyone projecting things, which has a nice way of dampening that effect. Right. No one had Trout getting it being a 10-win player this year. That just It was unreasonable to project that this kid at 21 years old or 20 years old is going to have the fifth best year a center fielder's ever had. Yeah, Zips has always loved Trout, but not to 11-win season Trout. Um, Trout crushed his Zips projection, and Zips already went into the season having Trout as the second-best player on the Angels after Albert Pujols. And what about the reverse of this list? What about players that exceeded expectations the most or projections the most? Kyle Loesch is one who tends to have a 
uh, tendency to overperform, and he did this year as well. Kyle Lowe's is one of those guys where I feel this about him and I feel this about Vogelsong. When do we just acknowledge that they're good? Uh, well, Vogelsong, I think we have a pretty good case. Zips, of course, doesn't go entirely by stats. It does accept within the calculation there's a chance that it's wrong. Uh, Melky Cabrera also overperformed this season, but then you get into a whole other issue, which, which you don't always want to deal with. Right, he had a little help overperforming. The performance-enhancing drugs is a very emotional conversation. There's a lot more heat than light still. But what do you think we know about performance-enhancing drugs? How much do you think performance-enhancing drugs actually affect performance? So far, it's, it's, it's pretty inconclusive in baseball. Baseball has a very strong skill component, and while obviously it can benefit you, uh, we're not really seeing significant drop-offs in players after they're caught with performance-enhancing drugs. And whether or not it's been helping in things such as, as track and field or or uh, weightlifting or, or applications where there's more of a pure strength factor, it just hasn't really been shown to, yet to be a huge issue in baseball. And if it does have an effect, it's certainly smaller than some people believe. There's no evidence that, that steroids turns a, a decent player into a superstar. That, that evidence does not exist so far. Uh, so it, I'm, I'm leaning towards it probably has a small but fairly insignificant effect, uh, which of course brings up a whole lot of issues with, with the, uh, the drug testing plan. When we get from some steroids to, say, human growth hormone, then the medical basis for even a theoretical improvement in performance starts to evaporate. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things where I think steroids can make a player better. I think if the if they do allow you to recuperate and work out more, I think uh, working out more is an advantage. And I think that who knows how much muscle mass can improve uh, velocity in, and distance in terms of the ball hit. But I think it does improve it at least somewhat, at least a little bit. And that little bit of a performance edge is all people may need. But I do think it's been overblown. I think the idea that you can have a essentially a replacement level player who takes steroids and the idea that he's going to become a Hall of Fame player because of steroids is completely absurd. It is. It's, it's completely absurd. And I think society as a, as a whole kind of has to question on some level some of the, the lines we draw around drug policy. Uh, we tend to draw white, white and black, see everything as white and black, and draw lines in the middle for drugs. And in fact, a lot of the issues are more complicated than that. Um, I love football, but there's a pretty good case that the negative physical aspects of football itself, the, the repeated concussions and physical abuse, are actually far more dangerous for a player than, than the steroids themselves. So I think as, as a society, there, there are a lot of tough questions about drugs and, and athletics that we haven't answered yet. And football players are using steroids, too. It's not just the concussions oh, and the high impact oh, of the absolutely. game. They're using steroids, too. It's just no one cares. Yeah, and uh, uh, there's kind of a faceless aspect of NFL players. I mean, people know what the quarterbacks look like, but generally speaking, they're just they're almost robots with with the helmets and the uniform. That that it's that they don't see players as individuals in the same way that they are in baseball. Have you run projections to see what Barry Bonds' career home run total would look like if without steroids? You know, we know we the Balco and, a, and the grand testimony that he started using in 1999. If he took his home run rates before then, and maybe with a normal aging curve to see what his home run total might be. I did do that several years ago. Uh, I don't know where the link is, but I did have him projected through 1999 to finish his career uh, in the mid to upper 600s for home run use. But it's dangerous to attribute all that to, to steroid use because in addition to steroid use, he would also undergo a training regimen that would be more receptive to using steroids in the manner. Uh, even if he didn't use steroids, he would probably get some benefit from a focus in that area. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to tell. We don't have a time machine. We can't run his life a million times. It, it's, it's hard to do that. And a lot of the research on steroid use isn't really very helpful. Baseball Prospectus in their extra innings book that they published last year or earlier this year had him at 661, which is a similar number to you projected. You had him in that range as well. I feel like Bonds, it's come to the point where he's almost been 
underrated at this point. It's because there's so much vitriol and, and hatred towards the steroids and, and, and what that did, and he wouldn't have got the record. Well, he probably wouldn't have got the record, but to him, he would have finished with six-something. I think we know that as a, as a fact, that he would have had 600-plus home runs and the stolen bases and what he was defensively and offensively. He's one of the handful of best players to ever play the game, and I feel like because of his steroid use, he's actually become underrated now. If the Hall of Fame has Jack Morris and not Barry Bonds, then we kind of have reached this level of, of just ludicrousness in giving players what should ostensibly be the best honor that baseball can give someone. We're headed there. I, I don't know. I don't think anyone's going to get in this year, which uh, I don't know what we're accomplishing where no one gets in. Uh, obviously, that'll get corrected next year with Greg Maddox and Frank Thomas. But I think this year, no one's going to get in. I think Morris will come close. But Morris is going to get in eventually, whether it be the, by the writers or by the Veterans Committee. We are going to see a point where Jim Rice and Jack Morris are Hall of Famers. Jim Rice will be a Hall of Fame left fielder and Barry Bonds won't be. Uh, Jack Morris will be a Hall of Fame pitcher and Roger Clemens won't be, which is a gross distortion of the history of the game. What always gets me also about the whole steroid thing is the the inconsistency behind how we treat steroids now and how we treat performance-enhancing drugs of the past. Uh, People had this idea that steroids were something that were discovered uh, between uh, the end of the 1992 and the beginning of the 1993 season, which, which of course, isn't true. Uh, there were steroid scandals in football going back to the early 60s. Uh, Diana Ball was uh, released to the United States in the late 50s. There, there has been ample opportunity for steroid use for a long time. And when you add amphetamines into the mix, which are still probably likely a problem to some degree, we, we've never really seen a clean game. Uh, the clean game's a myth. We've either had... Uh, segregated leagues or or the whole better living through better chemistry thing that you see uh, in baseball over the last 50 years. But people want to draw a line between generations of players in just an arbitrary fashion. Uh, players took amphetamines in the 70s. They thought it was a drug-enhancing, uh, a performance-enhancing drug. They didn't call it ability pills for if they didn't think that it wasn't. Let's look at uh, 2013 a little bit. Some of the biggest free agents that we're looking at right now that the group is headlined by Josh Hamilton and Zach Greinke. How do you project Hamilton over the next five years? Hamilton, uh, Zips does not project very well for a few reasons. One, he's not that young a player. Uh, He's kind of young in baseball years because he had that big disappearance of his career for for reasons we won't go into. But he is a player on the downside of his career, and he doesn't seem to be the type of guy who's really going to age incredibly well. He has probably some of the worst plate discipline you'll ever see in a player. He makes up for it with phenomenal physical skills, but it's hard to see him really adjusting uh, very well as his bat speed slows down. Uh, If you look at his... uh, uh, his statistics for plate discipline last year, he he swung and missed on a lot more pitches than Adam Dunn did, a lot more than Mark Reynolds did. His his contact numbers are absolutely horrific. Now he does a lot when he when he makes contact, but as he gets to 35, 36, 37, when his bat speed slows down, I have significant concerns about how he would adjust to that. Well, there's also an injury issue as well. Players who are injury-prone in their 20s tend to be injury-prone in their 30s as well. Yeah, he's, he's missed a lot of playing time. Uh, when you combine those two issues, I really think Hamilton's going to get overpaid this winter. What do you project his war at over the next five years? Do you have that? Uh, I have Hamilton at 15.6 wins above replacement uh, over the next five years. That's actually about the same as I have B.J. Upton projected to at 15.8. Is that because of an age thing with Upton? I feel like Upton never lived up to the expectations that were put on him as a top prospect. He's still a good player. But really, I saw that you have him. I I think you have him if he went to Philadelphia this year at a 4.8 war. That would be his career high. What makes you think he would produce a career year at age 28? It's a good park for him. Uh, Park park factors don't really affect all players equally because they're based essentially on the league as a whole. Uh, some some parks increase home runs. Some parks have better vision, better hitter's eye for, for players. Uh, in a park that increases home runs more than it increases other kinds of, of hits, has the potential to really help someone like B.J. Upton be more valuable to that team because a lot of his value comes from uh, his ability to hit home runs. And then you add in his center field glove, and there's, there's a good reason to think that he could have some serious value over the next few years. He's not, he's not a superstar, but there's some solid value there. 
you have Upton as a 15-win player over the next five years. How about Michael Bourne, the other top free agent in this class? I actually don't have him over the next five years, but I can run it while we talk. While we're waiting on, on Michael Bourne, the premier free agent pitcher in this class is Zach Greinke. He's head and shoulders above everyone else. How do you see him over the next, I guess, I mean, with Greinke, we're probably looking at a six- or seven-year contract. Zips projects Greinke to be very a very solid picture over the, over the uh, next half a decade. One of the aces in baseball. Uh, there, there are reasons to think that his ERA has been slightly inflated because he's had some pretty lousy defenses behind him and some pretty lousy bullpens uh, at stranding his runners over the last five years or so. I think he's going to be actually a good signing. There's always the risk of injury with a pitcher, but that's something that you have to factor into the equation. Do you see him as a consistent uh, four or five win player over the next five years? Absolutely. Uh, whatever team signs Granke, it's not going to be cheap, but they're not likely to be disappointed unless the old Tommy John surgery makes an appearance. Which it might. Predicting uh, pitchers' injuries is a, is a very difficult thing to do. His uh, career war right now, Granke, is at 29.5. If he were to add 25 wins, he would that would at least get him into the borderline Hall of Fame category. You think he has the uh, projections to be a Hall of Fame caliber pitcher over his career? He, he, he's certainly in that category. A lot of his, his candidacy depends on what the electorate looks like in, in 25 years or so. It's hard to tell still just how... Many people that, that use new statistics will be voting at the time and how the electorate as a group will feel about players. How about Michael Bourne? Do you have those numbers? I do. I do have Michael Bourne's projection. It's 15.5 wins above replacement over the next five years, which is almost identical to yeah, Upton. Almost identical. So, so you, could, you can make a good argument that from a projection standpoint, it really depends on what the team needs more. If they want that, that power or that speed in defense, which, which – Michael Bourne probably brings more defense to up than Upton at this point, even though Upton's had some terrific defensive seasons in the past. Which age is better? Does speed and defense age better than power? It depends on the player. Uh, one of the things that I found is that that, le- that the risk of a leg injury is kind of death for a player. Uh, if you look at Jose Offerman, he was he he actually was better than Mo Vaughn after after. The, uh, the signings that got a lot of heat for. But when his legs went, his speed just killed him because he relied on that. But generally speaking, as long as they stay healthy, speed players tend to age pretty well. You did a piece in the midpoint of the season, I think, about Giancarlo Stanton. You projected his home run totals, uh, where his career would be if he played uh, at every different park, and it ranged from if he'd played his uh, entire career from that point going forward at Coors Field, he'd be at 606. If he had played in, uh, at Kauffman Stadium, he'd be at 477. It's fascinating to see how much a park factor can change the trajectory of a career so much. How much do you factor in park factors when making all your projections? You have to factor in park factors definitely when you make projections uh, because different aspects of of parks are going to affect players differently. Uh, Predicting the future with park factors is a lot different than projecting, well, not projecting, but evaluating the past. When you evaluate the past, value is value. You don't really care if a stadium hurts a player more than other players because that value that value of a run still exists and it still hurts the player's value uh in the future you really want to it's really important to see how different stadiums will affect the player uh if you look at say uh Coors Field it tends to benefit players that put the ball in play more because that's why it's a hitter's park it has an effect most uh strongly on on balls that are hit into play, which you don't necessarily see for, say, Walter strikeouts. Uh, the Marlins, uh, when, when it was Pro Player Stadium, Marlins Stadium, whatever the Juice State Sunlight Stadium, uh, it actually had an effect on strikeouts. It drastically increased strikeouts pretty much for its entire history, much longer than by random chance. So you need to take, you need to take these things into account when projecting a player, uh, especially players that have significantly strong skills in one department. Those are the players that will be most affected by by unusual park configurations. Two years ago, when the Red Sox signed Carl Crawford, it seemed like a good signing, but I was always concerned that so much of Crawford's value came from defense. The exceptional speed and range that Crawford had. He didn't have a strong arm. He didn't have a terrible arm either, but his, his, his value was from defense. And I just wonder, they plopped him down in front of the big wall in left field. Doesn't that negate his range? I, and to me, there's just an issue of a park factor there where you have a guy who is fast and covers exceptional amount of ground, but if you put him in front of a big wall, you eliminate much of his defensive capabilities, thus eliminating his value. Do you think that's a lot of what happened with him? 
Uh, it's it's possible. People have actually been concerned about about park effects and and left field defense in Fenway. Uh, we're still kind of in the early stages of really figuring out how defense is affected by park on a on a numerical level. I mean, we're just getting to the point where we can get a handle over on defensive value over a number of years. Uh, and what complicates the Crawford case is that he never was really healthy all that much in Boston. So it's it's hard to draw conclusions for that. It certainly didn't help him. Certainly, but it, it's hard without more play to really say this is what happened. One of the interesting things that may happen in 2013 is that the Reds are talking about a moving Araldus Chapman into the starting rotation. Do you have any projections as to how he might fare as a starter? I had him as a strong number two starter as a, as a full time uh, member of the rotation. It's it's the kind of experiment that you, that you have to take a chance with uh, because I mean, as as dominant as he was a reliever, if he can be even partially as good as a starter, that has some serious value to the Reds, more than even a great closer would have. Uh, so as long as you're careful, I think teams should be more free at experimenting with these kinds of moves and role changes among players. Hall of Fame standards, to mix it up a little bit, can vary by position, but in general, a war of 60 gets you pretty close to the standards. It's lower than that for catchers, but uh, for position players, it's uh, it's a little bit higher for the individual positions, but 60 gets you pretty close. What active players do you have surpassing 60 wins over their careers? One of the most underrated players from a Hall of Fame standpoint is Carlos Beltran. Uh, nobody talks about Beltran as a future Hall of Famer, uh, but he's already, by baseball reference, above above 60 wins, uh, and he's likely to be easily within the top 10 center fielders in baseball history by the time he's done. But nobody looks at Beltran and says, we're seeing a great right now, uh, which, is, which is kind of sad because it's another victory for the sniff test. It is a victory for the sniff test, and it's unfortunate because the 90s and the early 2000s really produced a great amount of center fielders. Obviously, the headliner of that group was Ken Griffey Jr., and he'll get into the Hall of Fame. He'll get in right away for his ballot. But it also produced Andrew Jones, who has a tremendous amount of value uh, with his defense and also with the power he had early in his career. It also produced Kenny Lofton with the defense and the speed and the on-base percentage that Lofton had. It also produced Beltran and Jim Edmonds, both of which I think should be in the Hall of Fame. In addition to those guys, that's five guys that I think you can make a reasonable case be in the Hall of Fame. You also had people like Johnny Damon and Bernie Williams. While they're not Hall of Famers, they're still very good players. The 90s and the 2000s were a really great time for center fielders in Major League Baseball. Uh, the, the Hall of Fame has done a poor job generally at evaluating players that are kind of in the middle of the defensive spectrum that have a wide range of skills rather than one that stands out. Uh, if you look at the misses in the Hall of Fame uh, inductions, you see a lot of center fielders, a lot of third basemen, a lot of second basemen. Um, so that that's one thing you'd really like to see the Hall improve on. I I, I strongly believe that 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 25 years from now, the Hall of Fame is going to need to have kind of a 90s 2000s committee to try to fix some of the mess that's left by the current generation of of writers. This steroid thing is heading things in the wrong direction, and it's not just steroids that's that's eliminating a, a large part of a generation of players. There's also that element of you know. Voter incompetence. I'm, I'm a little hesitant to say that. That's a bit unfair. But it's Kurt Schilling's not going to get in, and Mike Musina is not going to get in. They're not going to get in because of steroids. That they, their careers have nothing to do with steroids. But they're not going to get in because they don't pass the sniff tests, and that's a problem. One of one of the things I'm definitely writing an article on this winter is Kurt Schilling's case for the Hall of Fame is essentially what the mainstream media thinks Jack Morris's case is. Schilling truly was an amazing postseason picture. Not only was it an amazing postseason picture, he was an amazing regular season picture. He can make a case that Schilling is one of the top 25 pitchers of all time, and that even includes the uh, the guys from the early uh, 20th century uh, who were pitching in the 1900s when the game was segregated and it was still developing. There was no film. The guys were pitching 600 innings. There was a year where Pud Galvin pitched 600 innings and struck out 200 batters. That shows you how much the game has changed, but uh, it's not Schilling's fault that he pitched at the same time as Roger Clemens, Randy Johnson, Greg Maddox, and Pedro Martin. Martinez. Those four guys all have a legitimate claim to be the best to ever pitch. We talk about what a player can control. He can control his career, and his career meets or exceeds Hall of Fame standards in every level with every number possible. It's kind of entertaining on some level. I mean, it's also sad on another level that the Hall of Fame still focused on players from the 40s. Uh, I mean, they're voting on Marty Marion again. Uh, We pretty much have about 20, some, some of the seasons in the 30s through 50s, 
20 to 25 percent of the plate appearances in the league are by people that are in the Hall of Fame. But the Hall of Fame keeps going back to the old 1940s trough to to make sure that everybody who ever played during that time frame is in the Hall, uh, which is kind of disappointing because I'd like to see them take more of a stance on figuring out the next 20 years of the Hall of Fame and how the, how it's going to be run and how it's going to change to reflect the changing reality in baseball. Yeah, and that's one of those things that the discrepancy in eras is a problem, and it's going to be a problem going forward. I actually have this, the 1870s, six Hall of Famers, and this number is not unique, meaning, for example, Cal Ripken played in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, so each decade would get credit for him. So the 1870s have six, the 1880s have 20, the 1890s have 41 the 1900s, 1900s, 1910 produced 45, 1910 to 1920 produced 53 Hall of Famers. The 1920s, they keep going back there for more, but they already have 62 in. Uh, the 1930s, can't get enough of those guys. They have 68, and then it starts to drop off. The 1940s, we go down to 50, and we go, we're at a point now where the 1980s have, the 1980s have 40. So we're at a point where we keep putting players in from the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and there are still a few that are deserving, but those players are grossly overrepresented compared to other decades in the Hall of Fame. The Hall of Fame kind of likes to kick these problems down the road and just kind of hope that everything works out. Uh, But if if some of the best players of this generation don't get into the Hall of Fame, it hurts the Hall of Fame. And hurting the Hall of Fame hurts us as baseball fans because they they showcase a lot of baseball history there. the Hall of Fame induction ceremonies is huge business for the Hall of Fame. And once, once baseball fans of this generation, a lot of their favorite players aren't getting into the Hall, there's less people going to Cooperstown, less people buying tickets, less people, uh, less merchants uh, on the sidewalks selling memorabilia. And, and that, that hurts the game. Uh, and I think the Hall of Fame has to, will have to eventually confront this issue head on rather than just delaying the, the reckoning. I want to ask you about two people who might be there at some point, but they have a long way to go in Mike Trout and Bryce Harper. What do you project Mike Trout's career war to be, and how about Bryce Harper as well? I have Mike Trout's career, the, the mean projection, uh, being in between the 50s and 70s, definitely on an early Hall of Fame approach pattern. He already has has 11 wins by, by baseball reference standard. That's essentially 20% of, of a borderline Hall of Famer's career. Uh, Angels fans like to talk about how underrated Garrett Anderson was supposedly, uh, but Trout's gonna gonna just flood Garrett Anderson's career total in 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 the very near future. Uh, Anderson's uh, was only a twenty, I think, in Baseball Reference, and and if Trout repeats it, he'll already have have surpassed Anderson's entire career. But both are in very early Hall of Fame patterns. A lot of bad things can happen over a decade and a half. But as starts go, yeah, yeah, you have to like where Mike Trout stands right now. And Bryce Harper, too. You have Trout being somewhere between 50 and 70, which is roughly Carlos Beltran. That's a Hall of Fame career right there. Uh, do you have Harper's projected uh, war total? I have uh, uh, Harper a little lower than that in the 50s and 60s, but there's a huge range along these numbers. Uh, a projection system doesn't know what's going to happen 15, 20 years from now, so there's a great deal of uncertainty. And so on some level, you could think this is this is very conservative, uh, but, but their careers could end tomorrow. They could go the uh, – the way of Cesar Cedeno and have a terrible second half of their career. Lots can happen, and when you're in a – when you're – putting up a war of 11 in a season, there are a lot more negative surprises than positive ones. I'm curious as to who you see might get to that 60 win total that's not, uh, that's not already there. Do you see Pedroia or Cano getting there? It has Cano with another 35 wins in him. Wow. Wow, it likes Cano. Yeah, it has him at, at, 20, over the, it has him at 20 over the next three and a half years, 20 over the next four years. Seven wins, though. Seven wins a year over the next three. That's well in the three and a half. I was just I was estimating six point three, five point nine, five point six, five. Zips clearly like Cano quite a bit. Uh, that's twenty two point eight over the next four years. Okay, so his career war total right now is thirty four eight. So that's essentially thirty five. Yeah, that he'd be at seventy. That puts him ahead of Sandberg, Alomar, Biggio. That would put him ahead of every. Well, Cano, Cano is on that on that on that approach pattern. No question. How about Pedroia? It has uh, 26 left for Pedroia. Another 2013, and Cano's going to officially put the, uh, the Pedroia versus Cano controversy to rest, I think. 
Pedroia is at 26 over the rest of his career. He's at 30 now, so that would put him at 56, 57, which certainly has him in borderline range. Uh, that Gan Alomar's at 62. Chase Utley's at 53 right now. Craig Biggio's at 62. So that would certainly have him. Jeff Kent's at 51, 9. That would certainly have him in the conversation. Now, I do have career totals that aren't war for everybody, pretty much. Let's start with those two. What do you have with the slash line of Cano? Cano, I have him finishing with... Zips has him finishing uh, at 294, 340, 484, uh, with 410 home runs, 3,128 hits. Wow. Getting the 3,000 hits there with Cano would be uh, fascinating. Cano right now is one of two second basemen in history to have a uh, batting average over 300 and a slugging percentage over 500. Roger Hornsby is the only one to do that. Cano is obviously likely to fall off some of that. His average is just over 300. His slugging percentage is just over 500. But just that he can maintain something close to that is rather impressive. Zips has has five current players uh, projected to have a mean projection, a mean final career of uh, 3,000 hits or more, and that's Derek Jeter, Miguel Cabrera, Pujols, uh, A-Rod Cano, oh, six, uh, Adrian Beltre, too. Yeah, Adrian Beltre will likely get to 400 home runs in his career, I imagine, too. Yeah, Zips has him at 479 with 3,000 hits, which, which puts him in the Hall of Fame pretty easily. No third baseman has done 3,000 hits and 400 home runs, so he doesn't need to worry about advanced metrics. The conventional numbers will get him in once his career is over, and if he, as long as he keeps performing the way he is. How about some of the younger players? It's, it's interesting to see as, the, as you project further for the younger guys. How, what do you see uh, Giancarlo Stanton's slash line and home run total? Zips has obviously liked Stanton for a while. Uh, it sees him as the, as the most likely of the younger generation to make a, a, a run at Aaron. It has him falling short. It has him at 582. But that's actually the fourth highest home run projection of any player, and everybody on that list is a lot older than him. Um, Zips does project uh, A Rod and Pujols to both fall short of Aaron and Bonds. Where do you see A Rod with his career home run total? Seven oh three. And Pujols? Uh, Six fifty six. What's Pujols' final slash line? Uh, three oh four, three eighty four, five fifty four. That's an OPS plus of one forty. And uh, thirty three hundred hits. I mean, he's still obviously a Hall of Famer at this point, uh, but his the expectation for his 30s has, has, has gone down a little bit the last couple of years for, for obvious reasons. How about Ryan Braun? Ryan Braun, uh, 452 for Braun, uh, 2678 hits for, for him. And what about his slash line? 297, 358, 519. Those seem like Hall of Fame numbers. It's hard, though, because the, the standards for, for corner outfielders have gone up. Uh, and there's always the question if someone's going to penalize him for, for the, the steroid test. Oh, he won't get in. If the current voting system is still in place in 30 years when Braun will be on the ballot, he won't get in. They, they will yeah. hold that against him without question. We would definitely need uh, a lower life expectancy for some of the writers <laughs> and, and, some of, and some more saver metric guys getting uh, BBWWA membership. Uh, if enough do, maybe, maybe we can uh, because law is going to have a vote in like, what, eight years? Nair has a vote. Yeah, Dave Cameron, Jay Jaffe. The problem is that that's like six people. Six people yeah. that <laughs> it's six people aren't going to uh, do anything to the percentages of 550 that are voting now. It's good that they're voting, and good that those guys will have a say. But I'm optimistic. I could be number seven, and then we really have something going. Uh. <laughs> then, then you're building momentum there. Let's switch over to some pitchers, some uh, active pitchers. How do you see uh, Verlander's career playing out? 258 wins, 3.48 ERA, uh, 122 ERA plus, 3,200 strikeouts. Uh, I have Verlander with the third most projected uh, wins of any current picture. Uh, Do you have Halliday again into 300? I have him at 261. And Sabathia? 274. Um, that, that puts Sabathia and Halliday both in an approach position for 300 wins, but it doesn't make them more likely than not to hit 300 wins. What are Halliday's uh, full numbers? His ERA, his ERA plus, his strikeouts? Uh, for Halliday, 261, 151, uh, 3.44 ERA, uh, 125 ERA plus. 2,800 strikeouts. Do you have a whip as well? Halliday have a 1.18 whip. Verlander also 1.18, uh, 1.25 for Sabathia. And Sabathia's uh, ERA and ERA plus? 3.71 ERA, 118 ERA plus. Reaching 3,000 strikeouts? Yep, 32.94. And where do you see Lincecum after a year like this? How do you see his career projecting? His career projection has gone down. He was at around 200 before this season. It's down to 171, and Zips is cautiously optimistic about his return. But obviously, his 
his trajectory has changed a little bit. You can't put up a season like that and have no effect on your outlook. I have uh, him at 171 wins with a 3.65 ERA, 108 ERA plus, which would not do it. Well, it's it's interesting, though, because if we're talking about Hall of Fame standards, with pitchers, it's going to come down. We're going to see this with this generation in particular, as none of these pitchers had pitched at all in a four-man rotation, so you have they're only in a five-man rotation. Some teams are dabbling with a six-man rotation with significant innings limits and pitch counts and the restrictions that young pitchers have. You're going to see the standards for pitchers come down significantly. We're not going to see... Uh, war accumulates, too. It's, it's, uh, it accumulates over time. So I think that the standards with, with wins, with strikeouts, with conventional numbers, as well as with wins above replacement are all going to come down with pitchers, especially this generation of pitchers like Lincecum and Felix Hernandez, Clayton Kershaw, who will have spent significantly less time on the mound than their Hall of Fame counterparts. Early on, I'm not super optimistic, uh, at least in the near future, considering how the uh, Hall of Fame treated Kevin Brown. Kevin Brown was also a, a Mitchell Port and a steroids guy, too. True, but he got he, he, he fell off the ballot. He didn't just get penalized like McGuire did. He just got thrown off. They didn't even consider him to be a Hall of Fame pitcher. And that's kind of problematic because better than Kevin Brown, you're not talking a whole lot of pictures. Uh, I mean, Brown crushes Jack Morris. Kevin Brown, it's interesting, though, because what Kevin Brown is, and we talked about this a little earlier, is an example of the sniff test gone wrong. It's clear that writers are not voting for guys associated with steroids. There's a significant portion of the writers who will not consider them. And I disagree with that, but at least that's the reason. But even still, Rafael Palmero gets 10% of the vote. Mark McGuire gets 20% of the vote. Kevin Brown fell off with getting less than 1% of the vote. That's a sniff test disconnect. Kevin Brown was at least as good of a pitcher as Palmero was a, as a hitter, but there's a disconnect between their values because of the traditional counting numbers. The, the sniff test is best saved for diapers and gas leaks. Other than that, <laughs> leave it out of the equation. Uh, one of the more interesting projections that Zips has uh, for career is it has Mark Burley hitting uh, 239 wins, and that puts him in the top 10 of everybody pitching today. So if we get to... Uh, a situation which Burley ages well, perhaps exceeds that you might start to see Burley get some Hall of Fame uh, candidacy, which would be interesting because he has a harder case than some of the better pictures. And the thing with Burley, too, his, his war is very high as well. It's high on fan graphs and it's high on baseball reference as well. He's one of those guys, though, that is consistently a four or a three or a three or four win pitcher, and he's done that every year of his career, but he's never had that six win year, that seven win year, that stretch where he's been a seven or eight win player. And that's what I think what you look for, too. It's that balance between peak and longevity. And I, I think Burley talked about his last contract before he signed with Miami that he was going to retire. And now then he signed that four year deal, and now he's definitely saying he's going to retire. So I think that with Burley, it's likely that he will retire at the end of this three years here and just go off and be a pitcher that was very good, perhaps underrated, but still fall short of Hall of Fame standards. I tend to think that with pitchers, I'm, I'm more open to longevity arguments because simply put, a pitcher being able to pitch and not have his arm fall off is a pretty big deal. I mean, you can pretty much get position players healthy, and so that durability isn't quite as exciting, but when you have a guy that that in violation of biology, can pitch and not have something bad happen to the ligaments in his elbow or tear something in his shoulder. That, that, that has a lot of value. Uh, because if you look at the pitching motion, we are not biologically equipped in any way to be pitchers. It's, it's like running a nail into your hand. That, that's what pitching is like. It's like an abuse of the human body. You watch the, the snap of the shoulder and the elbow. It's just horrific from a from a medical standpoint yeah it's such an unnatural motion softball's the way to go if you want to be healthy yeah, we should pitch underhand i mean yeah exactly we should also shoot free throws that way but no one's doing that either what about clayton kershaw in terms of his career projections kershaw comes he comes out of this, the best of the young pictures with around 240 wins but he has a huge uh, margin of error there because obviously he's got a long way to go and as I said, pictures can go boom, uh, but of the youngest generation, he, he might have the best shot at 300 wins of, of guys in their 20s, simply because he's, he's an excellent picture, and while the Dodgers may not spend money efficiently, they're going to spend a lot of it, and they're probably going to have better than average offenses of the next decade, just, just from the brute force of their payroll. What about his career ERA, ERA plus, strikeouts, and whip? 3.25 ERA. 3,400 strikeouts, ERA plus of 131, uh, and a 1.12 whip. Uh, so he has the potential to be the best picture of the generation, but there's a lot of, a lot of give and take there. He could end up being John Tudor.
Those are all Hall of Fame numbers. Can I switch over to batters for a moment again? Yes, you may. How about a guy that signed a big contract uh, during the season, Joey Votto? Zips does not have Votto having huge uh, career numbers. He didn't really have that, that nice early start that a lot of, of players did. It has him finishing with an OPS plus of 139, but only 2,200 hits, 340 home runs, and that probably won't do it. Uh, because there's still such an emphasis on counting numbers. That 140 number is a good number. That's uh, I think Larry Walker's at 140. Chipper Jones is at 140. So there are, there are Hall of Famers who are in that area. That's a good number. But uh... Votto had his first big Hall of Fame type season at 25, essentially. And it, and when you're building up those counting totals, it's nice to come up at 20 and 21 just so you have kind of that 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 nice numerical base to work with, uh, especially as as the voters. Uh, emphasize those counting stats over those qualitative stats. Uh, I think there's a good shot that Votto will deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. But again, you look at Larry Walker, who definitely has a case. I won't say he's a slam dunk Hall of Famer, but he certainly should have been talked about more than he has been. Yeah, he's a guy where if you take his numbers at face value, he's a slam dunk Hall of Famer. But you can't take his numbers at face value. He obviously did get a huge boost playing at Coors Field. But still, I think with Colorado, it, it annoys me because he can't control the air in Denver. We focus so much on what players can control. He can't control that the air is thin there and that the balls were traveling further. Of course he got an advantage there. Everyone else did too. Are we just going to exclude every hitter who played in Colorado? I, I, I think that's a mistake. You see, we, we tried so hard as, a, as the Sabermetric community to bang the value of park factors into the head of some of the people in the mainstream media. You know, the ones that were nearly orgasmic over Dante Bichette. But it seems to have gone so far. <laughs> well, they, they were. Uh, there was an old joke that uh, Grant Brisby of SB Nation now uh, used to joke is that on all Tracy Ringlesby articles uh, involving Dante Bichette, you could replace RBIs with pancakes because that's how Tracy Ringlesby wrote about Dante Bichette. He like smells the RBIs and he flips the RBIs and he wants to get more RBIs. That that that's how Ringlesby wrote about Bichette because the writers at that time loved Bichette. But once we eventually convinced uh, the majority of the mainstream media that that Coors Field and Mile High before them are insane hitters parks that we haven't seen in baseball history. They've gone the other way that have decided that the simple way you deal with park factors is just ignore everybody who hit well in them. And that's just an overreaction to that and just beyond ridiculous. So Walker will get less notice than he should have. And you take the air out of his numbers, he has an OPS plus of 141. He has uh, his wins above replacement, just a hair under 70 by baseball references uh, calculation. And that, that's a guy who should have a serious Hall of Fame case. What about someone like Joe Maurer? What do you see his slash line being? 301, 379, 423 uh, with 2,500 hits and 166 home runs. Uh, a lot of it is going to – I think it's going to have to come – towards how he's perceived. It's almost a situation in which the MVP season was the worst with the way he almost hurt him in evaluation uh, because then people look at the, the 28 home run season, they see 10 home runs, like, oh, it was just a fluke. But was, he was putting up Hall of Fame Mickey Cochran numbers outside of that season. Um, so it's interesting to see if, if his MVP season actually hurts him. Evan Longoria is in the news today. He signed a six-year extension beyond his current contract. Where do you project him? When I projected everybody in June, I had him with the with the uh, most remaining value over the next 10 years than anyone in baseball. Uh, he's since been surpassed by Trout, but I love the signing. Um, I mean, a lot can happen in in the next four years until they get to that contract. But they also paid him a sum that's likely to be what an average to above average player in the free agent market will cost then. It's not like the Ryan Howard signing where they paid him a ridiculous sum of money years in advance. Uh, I think the, the Rays properly have priced the risk uh, and, and have a pretty solid contract now with Longoria still. Where do you see his career numbers? Career number wise, I have uh, Longoria at 2,200 hits, 348 home runs, uh, 118 OPS plus, lots of defensive runs. His, his glove makes, makes him a very valuable player, uh, more, more so than it would be if he was just an ordinary defensive player. And how about someone like Tulowitzki? Tulowitzki I have at uh, 2,015 hits, 322 home runs, a lot, of course, uncertainty in career length, so that can go up or down over the next few years depending on how his health holds up. He hasn't always been the most durable player out there, and, and Zips does know that, so there's kind of a, it kind of hedges its bets 
so to speak. Who are the milestone guys? Who do you see as uh, 3,000 hits by the time they retire and 500 home runs by the time they retire? Well, I've already listed all the 3,000 hit projected guys, but if you look at, at the people who aren't projected to hit that range but are in a reasonable position, uh, you have Jose Reyes, you have Jimmy Rollins, which which some people might not think of, but he, he does have a case going forward. Uh, David Wright projects to have a reasonable shot at that, at 3,000 hits. When you're looking at 500 home runs, Stanton's a good, is a solid bet to pass it. Fielder should come close. Beltre should come close. Ryan Howard maybe would limp on the field enough to, to come close. I mean, you look at Kemp, Cano, Beltran, even Jay Bruce. Adam Dunn will likely get there, which there's really no reason to think that he's not going to be able to hit 30 a year for the next four years. That seems perfectly reasonable. Yeah, because of uncertainty, Zips only sees six people as being 50% odds or better of hitting 500 home runs. And that's A-Rod Pujols, Cabrera, Stanton, uh, Dunn, and Canerco. Canerco is someone you didn't really see as a 500 home run hitter a few years ago. He looked like he was kind of declining when you look at, at say, 2008 or so. But he, he has 422 home runs right now, and, and he's, he's still hitting well. How about David Ortiz? Ortiz I have at... 492. So if he hit 492, he'd probably try to hang on a little more a la Fred McGriff. All right, that was the end of Dan and I's conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I know there were a lot of numbers there. It was a nerd fest. Uh, I enjoyed that interview. I hope you enjoyed listening as well. Uh, Dan took a lot of time and uh, crunched a lot of numbers specifically for this interview, so I really appreciate him taking the time and a lot of it to join the podcast and, and crunch those numbers. I want to thank a few more people before I wrap things up entirely. I want to thank my friend Zach Milliken. Zach is a graphics designer who really helped me get my website, rosscarry.com, and replacementlevelpodcast.com up and running. He continues to help with some of the day-to-day maintenance and overall look and feel of the sites. So if you're interested in graphics designer and web design, you're looking for someone to follow on Twitter, you can give Zach a follow at ZachDM, Z-A-C-K-D-M, or check out his websites, paintedx.com and designtypes.tv. I also want to thank my friend Tom Rakowskis. Tom has been trying to help publicize the podcast a little bit. Tom's a pretty interesting guy to follow on Twitter as well. You can get his observations on life at The Mass Hacker. I also want to thank two bands for letting me use their music. Thanks to Baker for letting me use their song Reputation as the opening theme. And thanks to Scamper for letting me use their song Barcelona, which is playing right now. You can find out more information on both of those bands on MySpace Music. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. I'll have a new episode up soon.